This Thanksgiving, Marsha and I spent our time up in Broomfield, Colorado, there with our daughter Kelly and her husband Andy and our four grandchildren. We had a great time uh, celebrating Thanksgiving and then helping to decorate the house. We decorated the tree and put up the nativity scene. And as we told the story of the announcement of the coming of a baby, it got us to reminiscing about how had we announced that we were going to be expecting. It made us think back to when Kelly, our, our oldest, first came to our home one night. She brought a, a poem inside of a, a frame. She had written a poem and she had framed it, wrapped it up as a present. She brought it to the house. We were totally unsuspecting. And she said, we have a gift for you. And we unwrapped it. And, and I started reading the poem out loud. And about halfway through, I looked over at her and I said, are you pregnant? And she just smiled and started to nod and then started to cry. And then we all started to cry. It, it was a very emotional and very touching moment. Well, as you know, she now has four children. I remember the announcement of our fourth grandbaby. Marsh and I were driving home from Tulsa when we received a text. I'm pregnant. <laughs> a long way from first to last. But it's kind of interesting how you make that announcement you're expecting. Made Marsh and I start reminiscing about our first time. This was a while back. Things were different than they are today. There was no EPT test. No, you had to go to the doctor. And there was a blood test. And then you had to wait several days before the doctor could tell you whether you were pregnant or not. Well, it turned out that Marsha was working as a bridal consultant in Tyler, Texas. I just had graduated from seminary. We were waiting for a couple of months to move to Houston and start a new church. And so it was that she was working. And it was the, in June, it's the busy bridal season. And again, this was a day before cell phones. And in working at her job, you were not able to make phone calls at work. You were not allowed to tie up the phone. This was a busy job, a business. And you would get a break for lunch and a break for dinner. And so it was, we were told by the doctor he'd have the information sometime early Thursday afternoon. And Marcia said, I can't call. And he said, well, just have your husband call. We'll tell him. Now today... That's illegal. You can't share information about a patient with somebody else. But this was back in the day of common sense. And so it was, I was able to call the doctor. And the doctor gave me the news you're expecting. It'd be several hours before I was going to be able to go up to the mall and tell Marcia we were going to have dinner. And I have to admit, I started thinking about what did this mean? We were so excited, and yet I have to be honest, I started to feel anxious and afraid. I started worrying about lots of things. Marsh and I got married at 18 and 19. We were undergraduates. We took a course together, human genetics. We studied all about cell division, meiosis, mitosis. We had learned about how all this happens. And after we had taken that course, I said, we're not having children there is no way that can ever work. And yet, miracle of miracles, most of the time, it does work. And that's why I never see a baby that I don't think, what a miracle. What a miracle. I found myself getting anxious and afraid while our baby 
be healthy and okay. I knew we were moving to Houston and we're going to be living on the southwest part of town. We'd be going to Methodist Hospital, which was downtown Houston, 25, 30 minutes away in good drive time without traffic. And I already started worrying, can we get to the hospital on time? And it turned out that that was a justifiable fear because when the day came, our bag was packed. We jumped in the car. We headed for Methodist Hospital and we got there and we were sitting right outside of Methodist Hospital when we got rear-ended in an accident. I should have been worried about these kinds of things. Would we make it to the hospital on time? I got to thinking about how I'd never been around babies. I never babysat. We didn't have babies. I didn't know the first thing about taking care of a baby. And I started worrying, how will this child survive when we bring this child home? I don't know what I'm doing. Thank goodness Marcia does. No, I found myself starting to build and worry and fear. And we just had found out we're expecting. Finally, I went up to the mall. I brought some roses with me. I went to the restaurant early and put them down on a seat. And Marcia finally was able to be free on her dinner break and came down and said, well, what did the doctor say? And I said, I don't know. What do you think he said? What do you mean? What did he say? Well, I don't really know. What's it worth to you? Oh, I started yanking her chain. It was a lot of fun for me. I thought she finally was going to reach across that table and pull me across that table. What did the doctor say? And I pulled up the roses, and she knew, and we were so excited. I got to be honest. It was the one time, the only time, to where, for me as the father, I got to announce the fact that we were expecting. And that's kind of fun. And it is a little unusual, but it's not the only time it happened. It's exactly what happened for Zechariah and Elizabeth. You see, in our scripture lesson, we were reading about how Zechariah was in the temple, and there he was praying. Now, you need to understand that Zechariah and Elizabeth were both of the house of Levi. The house of Levi was descendants of Aaron, who was the older brother of Moses. And it was Aaron who became the first high priest, and all of his descendants were also called to be priests. Well, as the generations went by, year after year, hundreds of years, you now had thousands and thousands of men who could be priests, the Levites. They were broken into 24 different divisions of more than 300 in each division, and each division was given two weeks' assignment a year at the temple. But even when you had 300 people assigned for a week, it was way more than was needed to serve as the temple. And so they would cast lots or throw dice and see on whom the lots fell and you would then be chosen to serve as, to go in and burn the incense and offer prayers for the people in the temple. It was Zechariah on a high and holy day when the lots fell on him. A once in a lifetime kind of thing. And he went into the temple to pray, to burn incense, to lift up the prayers of the people, but he also lifted up the prayers of his own heart. You see, Zechariah and Elizabeth 
all their lives they'd wanted a baby. In that day, you needed to have a baby in order to grow God's family. All Jews were supposed to populate the earth. And it was through a baby that you had a heritage and legacy and, and eternal life. No, you just needed to have a baby. And they had never had a child. They were such good people. Had never happened. And now at an old age, there at the altar, Zachariah was still lifting up his heart. When suddenly the angel Gabriel appeared and said, Zachariah, do not be afraid, for God has heard your prayer. Elizabeth is going to conceive and bear a son, and you shall call his name John. And he is going to be the forerunner for the Messiah, preparing the way. As you can only imagine, John was certainly afraid. His first reaction was fear. The angel said the first words, do not be afraid. Because the truth is, when you discover that you're expecting, you're afraid. You start to worry. You become anxious. It's what happened for John. Can you imagine when he went home to Elizabeth and said, honey, I got good news. We're expecting. After all these years and now in our old age, we're expecting. This morning, I want to begin a sermon series entitled, What to Expect When You're Expecting. Because there are certain things that happen when you're expecting. During this season of Advent, it is a time of preparation. A time of preparing for a baby to be born. And we're working at preparing our hearts while we expect this birth of Jesus. And there are certain things that happen when you're expecting. And I'm hoping that when you and I come to Christmas Day, when we celebrate the birth of our King, that you and I have a greater sense of peace about our overall life. That we have a greater sense of hope in the midst of difficult times. That you and I have a a greater sense of love for others and for life. That in the end, you and I know a greater sense of joy because we are closer to God. It's what I hope happens as you and I go through this Advent season. Now understand, Advent is a time of waiting. That's what happens when you're expecting. You start waiting for the big event that is going to change your life forever. Now, when you stop and think about it, so much of life are periods of waiting. When you're waiting for those events that are going to change your life. When you're young, you can hardly wait to get out of school. That's going to change your life. And you hardly wait until you find that perfect spouse. And then you're waiting till you have a baby. You're waiting till you find that right career. You're waiting until finally things go well in your career. You're waiting till you are financially secure. You are waiting till you can retire. And I got to tell you, recently I've been visiting with a lot of members in our family of faith who are waiting to enter the kingdom of heaven. And they're not afraid. And they're ready to go. But they're having to wait. So much of life is about a time of waiting 
expecting, preparing. And one of the things we discover as we begin this preparation is it's so easy to worry and be afraid. We've already talked about some of the things you're afraid of when you're expecting. But what I've begun to discover is whenever you and I are afraid, how often the fears are about the things we realize we can't control. And how often the things we're afraid of are the things of tomorrow. And when you're afraid of the things that are going to happen tomorrow and the things you're not in control, then you lose a sense of peace. Your whole life becomes anxious and afraid about everything. So what I want us to do as you and I start this season of Advent is I want us to start this very first day thinking about how do you find peace when you're in that period of waiting, expecting? How do we grow in a sense of peace? Two things that I want us to see. First of all, it really is about making a commitment to listen in silence. I really want to ask out of you as you start this season to make a commitment to listen in silence. When Zechariah got the word, you're expecting, he was afraid. And he really doubted. He was anxious. Could this be? And so the angel said, because you have doubted, you're not going to speak for the next nine months. Now, some people hear that as a punishment. I really think God was giving Zechariah exactly what he needed. What Zechariah needed was to have to be quiet and to listen, to hear what God had to say. You're going to be silent for the next nine months. To listen. While I've been preparing for this sermon series, I've been reading a book entitled God is in the Manger by Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, some of you will recognize, he was a great German theologian. He was a Lutheran pastor back in the 1920s and 30s, growing up there in Germany. And in 1933, as Hitler started coming to power, Dietrich Bonhoeffer felt that this was wrong the things he was saying, the way Germany was being swept up, and he began to preach against Hitler and what was going on. And he did not back down. They began to really lean on him and to to persecute him and to harass him, and he continued to speak out at what he thought was wrong. He did it for 10 years. And finally, by 1943, when word began to spread what was happening to the Jews and seeing the war and that nothing was changing, Bonhoeffer got involved in a plot to assassinate Hitler, to say, how do we stop all this inhumanity? It was discovered, and he was put into prison. He would be in prison for two years. For two years, and kind of like what happened with Paul, Once Bonhoeffer couldn't be running around doing all that he'd been doing as a pastor, he started to write so much. And we have so many writings from his time in prison as he began to reflect on his faith and what he found. And I thought it was interesting in this book, God is in the Manger, he says, We are silent in the early hours of each day because God is supposed to have the first word. And we are silent before going to sleep 
because God also belongs to the last word. We are silent solely for the sake of the word, not in order to show dishonor to the word, but in order to honor and to receive it properly. Silence ultimately means nothing but waiting for God's word and coming away blessed. To start each day and to end each day in silence, listening for God's word. And what I want to ask out of you this morning is I want to ask you to make a commitment. We already started passing out our Advent devotionals last week. They're going to be out in the narthex again today. You can pick up a hard copy. You can get them online. They can be emailed to you. You can get them on Facebook. My goodness gracious, there are so many ways you can get it, our Advent devotional. But I want to tell you about a tradition Marsh and I have developed through these last years. During the Advent season... Every day we set our alarm a little earlier. We make the coffee the night before. We've set up yesterday our nativity scene on our mantle. We have up the Christmas tree. And what we do is we get up a little early and we start the coffee and turn the lights on to the tree and we start the fire in the fireplace. And then we sit down and we read the devotional. And we're just quiet. You can look at the nativity scene sitting there on the fireplace You focus on the Holy Family. You just listen. And we have our moments of quiet and a time of prayer every morning. And I can't tell you how meaningful that has become to us through the years. But this year I'm going to expand that. And I'm going to do what Bonhoeffer suggests. And I'm also going to have an evening, a time in the evening. So that when I come to the end of the day, I want to grow still. And I want to remember back how I saw God in the world during that day. And I want to be able to listen in silence. To let God have the first and the last word each day in this season where we're expecting a time of waiting. You never know what God is going to say. I came across a story this last week about Joe Terranova. Some of you might recognize the name. He is on CNBC, the financial network, Fast Money. He's a financial investor. I was watching, kind of seeing what's going on with the market and interest rates and all kinds of things. And and I saw him talking, and I I didn't remember the story. He had been asked this year, what are you thankful for as you come to Thanksgiving? And he referred back to one year ago. One year ago, two days before Thanksgiving, he was 48 years old. He was going in for a routine colonoscopy when they discovered a mass in his abdomen. They did an abdomen scan to discover a mass the size of a baseball in his liver, the right lobe of his liver. They said it really does look suspicious. And since it was now the day before Thanksgiving, they said we'll have to wait to begin doing all of our testing until after the holidays. Can you imagine what Thanksgiving is like when you've just received word you have a mass the size of a baseball in your liver, 48 years old? He tweeted in the end, about that time, he tweeted, if you want to measure your wealth, well, the next time that you find yourself thrown into a foxhole, 
See how many people join you in that foxhole. For that is your wealth. He was stunned at how many people came to him. They jumped in the foxhole with him. One man who was a friend was able to get hold of a world-renowned oncologist out in Los Angeles who agreed to call Joe on Thanksgiving Day. Joe was in New York. He said he went to his office. He got out all kinds of sheets of paper to ask all these copious questions and, and talk about diagnosis and what do we need to do. And when this doctor called in, the first thing he said was, before we talk about this, I'd like to ask that you pray with me out loud the serenity prayer. God grant me the serenity to accept the things that I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. And Joe said, it's not what I expected, but it's exactly what I needed. That Saturday, his niece was having her sweet 16 birthday party. It was a special time. They have a small family, just he and his sister. His mom and dad have both died of cancer. And so he went to this birthday party with all the friends, and it was going to be a dance, sweet 16. And he said, I saw my brother-in-law out there dancing with my niece. He was sitting with his five-year-old daughter. And all he could wonder was, Will I ever dance at her 16th birthday party? Finally, when the music stopped and it became the time that anybody could dance, he swept up his daughter and went out there, and for the next five minutes, they just danced together. And he said, what I came to realize is, all that's important is the next five minutes. As the time went by, they decided that maybe this mass wasn't so nasty. They've decided to be non-invasive. It's a year later. It hadn't grown. It hadn't shrunk. But it doesn't seem to be affecting his health. And he said, if you ask me on this Thanksgiving a year later, what am I thankful for? It's for the next five minutes. God grant me the serenity to accept those things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. You never know what you're going to hear if you grow silent and you listen. The promise is God will speak with what you need to hear. But secondly, Focus on the promise, not on your fears. Focus on the promise, not on your fears. For Zechariah, there was much for which to be afraid. I mean, Elizabeth was elderly. And in that day, how many women died in childbirth? What would happen to John? There was much to fear. Or you could focus on the promise. Elizabeth is going to conceive and bear a son, and you shall name him John, and he is going to be the forerunner for the Messiah. You can focus on the promise that God has drawn near, he hears, and he cares. He gives you strength. 
even in those difficult moments. For Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he spent these two years in prison. He had a, a fiance, Maria. He kept writing to her and to his parents. But he said to them so often, you need to understand, I am not depressed. I am at peace. I know happiness. I wish and I'm counting the moments so I can get out and be back with you, but you need to know I'm okay in prison. He was a man of such faith. He was a man who had lived his life to stand up for something that mattered. It was 10 days before the Germans started to surrender, about two weeks before Hitler would commit suicide, that Hitler ordered all of his political prisoners to be put to death. And Dietrich Bonhoeffer was hung. He was 39 years old. He never got out of prison. But he wasn't afraid. And he did know peace because his life stood for something that mattered. And he knew the presence of Christ even in that jail cell. Life is sometimes difficult. But even in those moments, we focus on the promise. For the promise to us this Advent is, and a child will be born, and his name shall be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. That's the promise. God is with us in ways we cannot anticipate, expect, or understand. God comes. And if you and I commit to listening in the silence, we hear God speak. We know His presence. And there still is peace. I came across a story recently of, of a man named Nelson Sousa. Nelson Sousa is a diver, construction commercial diver, up in New Jersey. He helps to build bridges and things like that. And he was telling about how one year at Christmas, they'd been working hard and finally the weather came in, something like this, with all the ice and snow and it was cold. And finally his boss said, we're done. So they bailed. It was about noon. They got out to his truck and his boss, John, said, I, I, I brought you your wetsuit. I borrowed it a month ago. I apologize for not getting this one back to you. And, and Nelson started to go hang it up like he always does there at work. But it was such a mess, he just threw it in the back of his truck, something he never does. And so he and his partner, Rob, and the boss, John, they all piled in the truck to take them home. It was about an hour trip, but it took three hours because the weather and the roads were so bad. And when they pulled up in front of John's house, there at the end of the street, you could see something taking place as a fire truck came racing by. And as the fire truck came racing by, they could see there was a hole in the ice on a lake. They immediately ran down to the end of the street to hear the word that a six-year-old boy had been out on the ice and had fallen through. There was a lady, his mother, wailing and screaming and crying on the banks. The firefighters had already tried to get out on but they were falling through. The water was so cold and freezing, people could not go in. But Nelson had a wetsuit. 
He ran back to his truck and put on his suit and got his mask as fast as he could back down to the pond. They put a rope around his waist and into the pond he went trying to go down. It was only about six foot deep, but he would go down and go down, and, but it was so murky. He couldn't see anything. And he knew how every moment was so precious at this moment. And finally he came up after several dives and he was screaming, I can't find him. I don't know where he is. And he looked over on the bank and there was this tall, blonde-headed man pointing over to the other side of the hole. And so he moved over to the other side of the hole and dove. And there he found the body. He pulled this little six-year-old boy up. His name was Michael. He was blue. He was not breathing. They pulled him back to the shore. Immediately the MTs grabbed him and ran to the, to the uh, an ambulance. They took Nelson over to John's house and he and Rob and tried to warm him up. They then drove Nelson home and he was so depressed he hadn't been able to save this boy. They finally got a call from the hospital about 9 o'clock and the hospital said things do not look good but he has actually been revived but he's been given last rites. They waited through the night. Nelson said every year they put up their own nativity scene and they wait to put the baby Jesus into the manger until Christmas Eve. And he said as he looked at that empty little manger, all he could think about has there was a bed tonight that was also empty from a little boy. The next morning they got a phone call from the hospital saying that little Michael had stabilized, but it still did not look good. Three days went by. And at the end of three days, he had been on a respirator and IVs. And the people at the hospital kept telling the parents, he's stabilizing, but you need to know you may not be getting back the little boy you once knew. He was gone for ten minutes. But on that day, they took him off the respirator. And little Michael started to open his eyes. And when he did, he said, hi, Mom. Hi, Dad. He was back. Two days later was Christmas Eve. And it was on Christmas Eve that, Michael, that Nelson got a call from Michael's family saying, the doctors have said he is normal and healthy and perfectly fine. And they let us come home. We wanted to invite you and your family to come over and celebrate Christmas Eve. And so Nelson grabbed his wife, Pat, and his two little girls, and they went over to go see Michael and his family and when they came in, little Michael came and climbed up into his lap and just would not let him go. And Nelson said, when you woke up in the ICU, what did you see? And little Michael looked up and said, I saw an angel. And then he said, thank you for saving me. Well, it really wasn't me, said Nelson. It wouldn't have happened if it hadn't been for that blonde-headed man standing there on the shore of the of the pond, he's the one who pointed where you were. And it was Michael's mom who spoke up and said, Nelson, your partner Ray told us how you keep talking about this blonde-headed stranger there on the banks of the pond. After everyone has been interviewed about this event, no one has seen a blonde-headed stranger there on the pond. Only you. Only you. And Nelson said, 
that Christmas, I was reminded of how God, in whatever way and however, comes to meet us in our deepest point of need. He comes so you don't have to be afraid. The promise is, His name is Emmanuel, which means God with us. You focus on the promise, even in the really hard times. Those times when you're afraid of what the future might hold and you know you're not in control, you grow still and you listen because you're going to hear God speak. If we grow still, God will speak during this period when we're expecting. It's in the name, Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let each of us lift up our own silent prayer. Amen. Oh,